Hey, welcome back, everybody. I am so glad that you are joining us today online as we continue our series through the book of Revelation. But before we go to our study, let me just say a quick word first about our church app. I love our church app, and I hope it's a great resource for you. However, over the last week or so, we've heard plenty of chatter from the church through emails and conversations that when you try to open up the life group questions or the sermon notes, instead of it opening up to the correct week that we're on, it's actually opening up to the previous week. Now, I don't know if you've had that experience or if you're having that experience right now watching me and you're trying to look at the sermon notes, you're wondering, hey, why is this week not up? Well, well, that kind of struck as odd because we always upload the correct week. And so we started to investigate and uh, we learned that this is a problem that we're having. It's not our problem. I think it's with the app, but we're trying to get to the bottom of it, of why it's not opening up to the correct week. So if you're having that problem right now, let me just tell you, in the meantime, till this gets corrected, if you open it up and you're on the wrong week, if you look at the top left-hand corner of the screen on your app, you're going to see a little uh, uh, icon that says, More Notes. Just tap that, More Notes, and it's going to take you to the list of all the notes available. Select the correct week that you want, both for notes or life group questions, and it will come right up to where it's supposed to be. It's still easy to find. It's like one extra step that shouldn't need to take, but it is what it is. And so until we get to the bottom of that, I just want to give you a heads up. If you're experiencing that issue right now, just tap the More Notes, or the you know, and it will take you back, get more questions, whatever, more, more notes, and you can follow right along. Let us know how we can help you. Um, if you have any trouble trying to find that. Well, last week we started with chapter 8 in which John offers the second vision of the complete future in abbreviated form. So just kind of review, we went through the first seal. Seals 1 through 7 is a complete snapshot. It's a view of the full future from John's time to the end of time, the opening of these seven seals. We looked at last week the vision of the seven trumpets, which opens the exact same way. You have these trumpet blasts, and, and this is a view of the complete future. Later, we'll have a third vision of John, and this is of the seven bowls. All three of these visions, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, they're all describing the same timeline of events from John's day to the end of time. You know, there's actually a name for this. It's called progressive parallelism. And the idea is simply this that each of these three visions is narrating the same sequence of events. It's the same one. It's not three separate sequences. No, it's the same sequence of events. It's telling the same story three times in a row with a little bit more intensity each time. So last week, we started to dig into this second vision of the complete future, which is of the seven trumpets. And what did we learn when we started to unpack these seven trumpets? We learned that in the last days that we are living in right now, there's going to be all kinds of insane traumas and natural disasters, plague-like disasters in the last days. <clears throat> so like hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes and COVID-19 outbreak and all kinds of things like that. This is a warning that the return of Christ is near. John's vision of the seven trumpets also reminds us of the reality that is spoken out of throughout the entire Bible. And it's this, that Satan and his demons are also a reality. They are also a presence during the duration of the last days. 
So these last days we're in, the Bible calls the labor pains. They are also include Satan, which God has allowed, he and his demons, to unleash chaos on this earth. So the seven trumpet blasts, they unleash the elemental forces of nature and the demonic forces of hell. Is it any wonder why there is so much evil in this world and why we experience difficult things? I shared with you last week that I do believe that we are living in the days when the seventh angel is about to blast his trumpet. The first six trumpets have been blasting all the way since the time of John, 95, 96 AD. But you see, when the seventh trumpet is blasted, that will mark the final judgment and the end of time and the fulfillment of all of God's redemptive purposes. Friends, I want you to hear this. Everything in the Bible, especially everything that we're studying in the book of Revelation, well, that leads me to the conclusion that the return of Christ could happen at any time. The first six trumpets have blasted, and the seventh one will too. Now, we don't know when that is, but everything in Scripture tells me that we are living in the days when the seventh trumpet could blast at any moment. So, what does this mean? It means we are to be warned. We look at everything around us. That should be a warning. And what else does it mean? It means that we are to be ready. But sadly, what did we learn in chapter nine? Many, many people will not be ready. They will not repent of their sins. They will still chase after earthly idols. They will still be involved in sexual immorality and thieving and everything else. And then judgment will come. These next two chapters of Revelation that we're going to study today, chapter 10 and chapter 11, have become dear chapters to me. I love chapter 10. I love chapter 11 because they are so relevant to the world that we're living in today. There is a message in there that directly relates to the church, to you and me and every Christian who is alive today. Chapter 10 and 11, it describes things in very apocalyptic language of what we as Christians are to be all about and what we are to be doing until we hear that seventh trumpet blast. In chapter 10 and 11 of the book of Revelation, that, those two chapters are also known as an interlude. Now, we haven't talked about interludes at all in the book of Revelation, but there are several of them. We've already looked at one of them, although I didn't really point it out as an interlude because I want to do that now. An interlude is a time. It's not really a duration of time, but it's like a, a gap between one thing and another. If you go back and remember the seven seals, we saw seal one, seal two, seal three, all the way up to seal six. And then there was like a break. There was like a pause. There was this um, description of something between the sixth and the seventh seal. That is called an interlude. There is an interlude between the sixth trumpet blast and the seventh trumpet blast. That's an interlude. That's chapter 10 and 11. Here's how it kind of works with the trumpet blast. Let me try to describe it to you. We read that when the trumpet blast starts sounding, we read them kind of in rapid fire. The first trumpet blasted and this happened. The second trumpet blasted and this happened and so forth. Boom, 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 right in a row. The sixth trumpet happened, and this happened. However, before the seventh trumpet gets blasted, we have these two chapters in the book of Revelation, chapter 10 and chapter 11, that happen before the seventh blast goes off. That's called an interlude. It's kind of like a short break. Interludes in the book of Revelation, they help us kind of stop for just a moment. 
they, they help us kind of take an inventory so that we can view our present hardships, what we're dealing with in this world today in light of and with the perspective of the future that God has planned for Christians. Now, now think back to the seven seals for just a minute. They reveal what? They reveal that all this bad stuff is going to be happening throughout the entire duration of the last days. There's going to be military conflict. There's going to be bloodshed. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famines, economic hardship. There's going to be death all throughout the last days, including, sadly, the death of many, many, many Christian martyrs. These are the kind of things that take place. And they should warn us, and we should understand that these are, are, are broken days, Then the sixth seal is opened, and there is a giant earthquake. Do you remember? Earthquakes are symbolic of God's judgment, and then that means judgment day is here. Okay? So the sixth seals are opened, and then there is an interlude before the seventh. The seventh chapter of Revelation is that interlude. It's like this. Okay, whoo, that's a lot of stuff to take in. Man, I'm trying to absorb that, so let's just stop for a minute. And that's a lot of information in. So we're going to stop and we're going to get some perspective. How does all of this hardship, bloodshed, death, conflict, economic plagues, how does all of that fit into the glorious future that God has planned? And so you read chapter 7, which is this interlude. And we read about how God has rescued um, Christians from every tribe and nation and language. Those who are wearing white robes, which is, which is the wardrobe of the saved. And we have this image of all of us, a sea of people that nobody can count, who have been sealed by God, who are worshiping the Lord around his throne. We are worshiping him and God steps and he wipes every tear from our lives. And we're like, oh yeah. That that's what's going to happen. We're going to be just fine. The days that we're living in, the last days, well, they are evil and they are full of all kinds of bad things and things that are tough on us. But you know what? God has got me. And we win in the end. We win. And then the seventh seal is open and it's done. And it's complete. That's what we learn in the interlude. So the same thing with the seven trumpets. We rattle off the first six trumpets and we learn that the last days are going to be filled with all kinds of hardships. And not only that, all kinds of demonic forces come against the church and they come against us individually. And then there's this interlude after the sixth trumpet blast, but before the seventh. And it causes us to say, okay, that's rough. And that's actually kind of scary stuff. But let's take a breath for a moment. Let's get some perspective on these last days we're living in. And that's chapter 10 and 11. And let's read it together. If you would, open your Bibles to chapter 10, verse 1. The six trumpets have sounded. We're in the last days, but the seventh trumpet has not sounded yet. Judgment, the return of Christ, it has not come. We read this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot in the sea and his left foot in the land, and he gave a loud shout like a roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but 
I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So let's just stop there for just a minute because this is quite a scene that's unfolding before us in scripture. What an appearance that this angel has. Did you, did you hear how he was described? A mighty angel coming down from heaven. His appearance was very godlike. John's describing this angel using the same words and the same imagery that he used earlier in Revelation when he was describing God around his throne. He said there's a rainbow around his head. His face shines like the sun. His legs glow like fiery pillars. All of this reminds us of imagery of Christ's radiance from the very first chapter of the book of Revelation. He's robed in a cloud and that takes us back to some imagery in the Old Testament when the glory of God was concealed inside of a cloud. Here's what's pretty clear, that the person who speaks through this angel is the Lord. This is an authoritative word from God. And boy, what a voice does this angel have. This angel's voice sounds like the roar of a lion. In the Old Testament, specifically Amos chapter 3 verse 8, God's voice is described as a, like a roar of a lion. No wonder when the angel speaks, the, the voices of seven thunders speak. It had to be loud and intimidating. Remember, the number seven in apocalyptic literature is a symbolic number, it means complete. And so the seven thunders most likely symbolize the totality of God's word. There is a complete spoken revelation. And this is an awesome scene coming down from heaven. Something is being communicated to John and John is like, where's my pen? Where's my paper? I have got to write all of this down. But God stopped him. He's like, no, 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 no. You don't write down this part. Why did God do that? Why did God say, John, no, 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 no. You're not allowed to write this part down. I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps it's something that we'll get to learn about in heaven. Perhaps this is part of the revelation that is reserved for Christians who get to experience around the throne room of God or what heaven will be like. Whatever it is, it's probably something we will find out one day at a later time in heaven perhaps. But John's not allowed to write it down here. So what does John get to share instead? What does he get to do instead of writing down this complete revelation? Well, look at verse 8 of chapter 10. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So what John is allowed to do, he's allowed to take this little scroll out of the hand of the angel and he's supposed to eat it, which he does. And the Bible indicates that when he digested it, when he digested this message that he was supposed to share, it turned his stomach sour. So capture the symbolism and the imagery. There's information in this scroll that is supposed to be shared with, with the whole world. I mean, I mean, the message is for many peoples, nations, language. Basically, the whole world is to receive this. It is sweet in his mouth, but he had digest this word and it turns his stomach 
what, what does this all mean? Sweet in his mouth, but turns his stomach. The most likely interpretation is that this God-given message has both positive elements and it has negative elements. This prophecy, it contains a bittersweet message. The sweet part is probably about salvation. The bitter part is probably about judgment. And honestly, I just, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. When you boil it right down to it, the truth of the gospel, the complete message of God, it is in some ways a bittersweet message. To those of us who have accepted this message as incredibly good news, it is like the sweetness of honey. It refreshes us. It is wonderful to the taste. But to others, the message of the gospel, the words of God, what are they? They are offensive and it turns their stomach. And we've all seen this, haven't we? The the Bible causes some people to turn to God while at the same time others are offended by the words of God and they persecute even those who do believe the words of God. Those who it turns their stomach turn on those who find it sweet. You know, the Apostle Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let me give you a couple examples that I think you'll relate to. Take Billy Graham, for example, probably the greatest evangelist um, of our time. The, what is the word of God to Billy Graham? Well, the word of God is life itself. Billy Graham said this about it. He said, if our faith isn't rooted in the Bible, it will wither like a plant pulled out of the soil. So to Billy Graham, the words of God, God's words, they are sweet and they are accepted and it led him right towards salvation. Let's look at somebody else. Let's take Bill Maher, for example. What is the word of God to Bill Maher? The word of God to Bill Maher is a joke. It's foolishness. Bill Maher said this about it. He said, faith means making a virtue out of not thinking. It's nothing to brag about. And those who preach it and enable and elevate it are intellectual slaveholders, keeping mankind in a bondage to fantasy and nonsense. So to Bill Maher... God's word is what? It's bitter. It's rejected. And it leads him right towards judgment. So this scroll that John ate, it was bittersweet. I believe that John is digesting the heart of the message of of God that the church must be shared. That's why this must be shared to all peoples, nations, language, and kings. To some, it will be sweet. To others, it will be bitter. And that right there, my friends, absolutely fits the context of the book of Revelations. The Christians who are reading this in John's day, the original context of this writing, of this revelation, they were heavily persecuted. Do you remember? Lines were being clearly drawn in their world. There were those who were undoubtedly with the Lord. And there were those who hated Christians. There were those who found God's word sweet to the taste. And there were those that it turned their stomach. And it was against everything that they stood for. So John eats this little scroll. I believe that it is the bittersweet message of the church. The bittersweet message 
that is being witnessed of and preached of by the church. Well, that is on full display in chapter 11. And this understanding of the bittersweet message of God, it falls into perfect context in chapter 11. Look at it with me, would you? So after John eats this scroll, chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer courts. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. I want to tell you something. Chapter 11 is a pivotal chapter in Revelation. And I want you to remember something. Revelation is what? It's apocalyptic literature. It is full of symbolism. You know, things mean something else. Numbers relate to other things. So John is told what? He said, John, I want you to take this measuring rod. I want you to measure the temple of God. This is an image that all the Christians of that day would have fully understood. He says, I want you to measure the temple, but I want you to exclude the outer court. This is God's way of having John um, identify the difference between those who are in and those who are out. Those who are with God and those who are not with God. Those who accept this message as sweet and those who have rejected it as bitter. He's like, John, I want you to go to identify who's in, who's out, and you're going to measure it. And he uses the symbolism of the temple. Now, if you recall from studying the Old Testament, the temple is located in Jerusalem. And the temple is at the very center of God's people. The temple and the inner courts are reserved only for God's people. The, The Jews at that time, before Christ, it was just for God's people, Israel. The outer courts were for the Gentiles. Or in other words, anybody who was not a Jew, somebody who was outside of God's family, they could hang out in the outer courts. You have inner courts for God's people and you have outer courts for everybody else. So God tells John, go and count the temple and exclude anybody who is in the outer courts. This clearly symbolizes the difference between those who are saved in, those who are not saved out. Those who are with God, And in the context of John's day, it's the church, those who have been sealed, the followers of Christ, the church, the new Israel, as the Bible describes, Christians. They are in the temple. Everyone else is on the outside, the outer courts. That's where the lost people are. Saved and sealed inside, lost and unsealed outside. There there is a, a very clear message being sent to the church with this. It's this message. God is paying attention God takes note of those who have faith and those who do not. God knows who belong to him and who does not belong to him. He knows who's in his family and who isn't. He knows who the true believers are. And I want you to know today, friends, as I say that, that if you're watching me right now, and you are not in, you are clearly out, it is not too late. What is clear in the Bible, this is the sweet part of the message of the Lord, is that you can move from out to in by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. There is still time for you because the seventh trumpet has not blasted yet. You can go from out to in through faith in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. And I'm calling you today. If you are right now out, it's time to get in and you know who you are. 
Move from out to in through faith in Jesus Christ while there is still time. What will those who are out do? So John takes his measurement. He identifies the church. What's gonna happen with those who are outside? He says they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. You gotta understand, again, in symbolism here, the holy city is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, at this point, in the context of Revelation, is symbolic of Christians. They are the people of God. And the Gentiles are gonna trample over Jerusalem. This symbolizes how non-Christians will treat Christians during the last days. And friends, this fits into the context of Revelations. Christians in the first century would have been like, yep, that is exactly how it is. They're trying to knock us down. They're trying to stomp all over us. And they're trying to trample us to death. And we're doing the best we can to stand for God. They're trampling over us. It's not unlike what we are seeing right now in communist China. There is an organized governmental effort to trample on and trample to death the Christians in China by its very own government. I read this recently and I'm still researching it out, but it's my understanding that even in the state-run churches where they tell you what you're allowed to, to think and read, they do not let Christians have access to the book of Revelation. Now, isn't that interesting? Why would the Chinese government not want Christians to have the book of Revelation? Because it's a message of hope. It's a message that Christians overcome oppression. That even though all this oppression, even led by demonic forces, cannot stop the church. And in the end, the church rises up and we win. And the evil forces of the devil get shut down. Oh, the Chinese government does not want Christians getting their hands on the book of Revelation. For the same reasons why, why, why they wanted to trample out the Christians in the first century. They didn't want them to stand up under this. So verse 2 says that the trampling of Christians will go on for 42 months. How are we supposed to understand this number of 42? Friends, what I'm about to share with you right now, if you can track with me, it will probably unlock the rest of the book of Revelation for you. Uh, in fact, I would say that understanding the symbolism of, of the images in chapter 11, including the symbolic images of the number 42 and others, will be like a light bulb going off in your head. Why do I say that? Because that's the exact same experience that I had. When I started to understand what these numbers mean, it was like, bong, and everything else seemed to make sense after that. The number 42 that we just read, they're going to trample on them for 42 months. Well, that is an extremely important symbolic number in the book of Revelation. To unlock it, you have to know that John is borrowing language from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. We're not going to take time to read from the book of Daniel the whole thing today, but for those of you that want to take a deeper dive, I'm trying to point you to things. Now, I want to go deeper in this area. This is a great area to go deeper. Like last, last time I said, hey, if you want to dive deeper, compare the 10 plagues of the Exodus story to, to the book of Revelation. Here, compare Daniel to Revelation chapter 10 and 11, specifically Daniel chapter 12 to Revelation chapter 10 and 11. Because here's what's happening. In the book of Daniel, Daniel has a number of visions. It's the other apocalyptic literature in the Bible. And these visions are very reminiscent of John's visions in the last days or in the book of Revelation. So in Daniel, in the Old Testament, the angel predicts the events of the end time leading up to judgment day. And Daniel asked the question, hey, how long till that happens? 
You know, Daniel asked the same question that many of us ask. Hey, I get it. How long till we get to the end? And the angel answers this way. It's in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And it says this. I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Now, I'm going to give you a minute just to look at that, okay? It's, it should be on the bottom of the screen here. If you've got your Bible open or the app open, you can see it. Look at that. How long till we get to this time? The end. Judgment day. The consummation of all that God has planned. How long? The angel says it will be for a time, times, and half a time. That's how long. Now, how long is time, time, and half a time? What in the world does that mean? It's not obvious on the surface. Interestingly, okay, the reason I bring this up, John, in Revelation chapter 12, he will use the exact same phrase. Remember, I believe that the first century Christians had a much better handle in many ways of the quote-unquote Old Testament, their Bible, than many Christians do today. John's reader, John's reader, the original audience, the Christians in the first century, they would have connected a dot right there. When John said in Revelation 12, uh, talking about till the end, how long is this going to last? He says time, times, and half a time. They'd have gone, oh, that's what Daniel said. Well, how did Daniel use it? Let me just tell you, time, times, and half a time is a symbolic reference to a length of time between the revelation that John receives in 95, 96 AD until the very end of time. Times, time, and half a time, it's just a, a, a symbolic duration. It's just a reference to the last days, the complete last days. And John, he will use variations of this phrase and variations of these numbers all to describe the exact same thing. He just means... It will last the entire time of the last days. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but it will be for time, times, and half a time. The whole time. Now, this is where it gets really fascinating to me, and I hope it is to you. When John does the math, he comes up with numbers. And so let's break down this math. John does the math times, time, times, and half a time, and he comes to the number three and a half. Here's how he comes to that. Let's break it down. Take the word time. Okay, it's in the singular form, so that means one. The next word is what? Times, that's in the plural form, that's the number two. Half a time, well that just means half. So if you look at it all together, it's one plus two plus a half equals three and a half. That's pretty basic math. I didn't even need to use common core to figure that out. Just old school math, one plus two plus half is three and a half. So for John in Revelation, the number three and a half means the exact same thing as a time, times, and half a time. Remember, it is a symbolic reference to the complete duration of the last days. So John uses the number three and a half to refer to days. He uses it also to refer to months. And he uses it this way. Look at it this way. Three and a half years also is equivalent to what? 42 months. That's 12 months times three and a half years, and you get the equivalent of 42 months. He will even stretch that out in this very chapter, and he'll make references to 1,260 days. What is that? 
Well, 1260 days is the equivalent of three and a half years. So if you're using the lunar calendar where there's 30 days in a month, you have 30 days times 12 times three and a half. What do you get? 1260. So this is very important. John uses the numbers three and a half. John uses the number 42. John uses the number 1260. He uses the phrase time, times, and half a time. All of them carry the exact same symbolic meaning that refers to the length of time from the revelation that he received in 95, 96 AD until the return of Christ and judgment day. Now with this understanding, how should we interpret what we just read? in Revelation chapter 11, verse two. We just read it a few minutes ago. So he was told to go measure the temple and to, understand, to decide or, or to measure who's in and who's out, the saved and the unsaved. And then it says what? They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. John means that non-Christians will persecute Christians throughout the entire period of the last day. From John's day till the end of time, there will never be a day when Christians are not persecuted, when they are not tormented, when they are not flat out destroyed and killed for their love of Jesus. Christians who carry this bittersweet message of salvation and judgment will always face resistance until the return of Christ. They will try to trample on Christians for 42 months, or in other words, for the entire last days. And it will be happening all the way up to the point of Jesus' return. Look at verse 3. John says that he received this, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for, what's this? 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time. They are prophesying and they have the power to turn the water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Oh man, do I wish that I had the time today to dive into the entire symbolic picture of these two witnesses. But let me just, as I've been trying to do, let me just cut to the chase. Let me try to give you the big picture. There have been many guesses as to who these two witnesses are. And depending on your, you know, end time interpretation, you come up with different answers. Some people look at this and say, oh, this is obviously Peter and Paul who have come back to life to stand testimony during the seven years of tribulation if your uh, uh, interpretation of Revelation leads you down that road. Others say, no, the witnesses are Enoch and Elijah. They are two people in the Old Testament that did not die natural deaths. They were brought up in chariots of fire. No, those are the two witnesses that are going to come back. Or perhaps maybe Elijah and Moses. Let me tell you where I'm at in my study, friends, and what seems clear and obvious from the context of Revelation. Where I'm at in my study is that these two witnesses who will prophesy for 1260 days. What is 1260 it's the same thing as 42. It's the same thing as three and a half. It's the same thing as time, times, and half a time. It's the duration of the last days. It's from John's day till the end of time. So this witness, these two witnesses that are bearing testimony, they have been doing this now for over 1,900 years. These two witnesses then is a symbolic reference to the church. 
And that fits the context. We've already seen in chapter one that Jesus was standing among the seven lampstands. Do you remember? And the lampstands were even told in chapter one, well, that is symbolic for the church and its witness. It's the testimony of Jesus that has been carried on by the ambassadors for Christ, taking good news to the whole world. There are two lampstands, which is very consistent with first century thinking that has its roots all the way back into the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verse 15, that says that a matter must be established by the testimony of at least two witnesses. If two or more witnesses say, then it's true, and that can be taken as valid testimony. That is why there are two lampstands. It is a true, valid testimony of Jesus. Now, back in John's day, lamps were fueled by olive oil. In fact, in my office, I have an olive oil lamp that I, that I received when I was in the Holy Land a couple years ago. And these olive oil lamps are fueled by olive oil. Where, do, where does olive oil come from? It comes from olive trees. So what's interesting in this symbolic picture of the witness of the church is that these two lampstands are what? They are being directly fueled right from the olive trees themselves. They are not going to run out of fuel. This is an everlasting fuel. It's going to be the duration of the end times. The church will always witness for Christ. That flame will never be extinguished. And there will be witnesses for Jesus until the very end when we see Jesus coming in the clouds one day. No, 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 no. This witness is the church. We are connected right to our source, which is the Lord. And we will always witness for him. The church will never die. Do you hear me? That's this image. These two witnesses face great opposition. The church faces opposition. And this is what it looks like. Look at verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in public squares of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, which where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, age will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth." You know, the message of Christ, the witness of the church, that is a powerful thing. But that doesn't stop the devil and his demons from attacking the witness of the church. And in this vision that John has, these two witnesses are actually overpowered and killed. Does this mean that the devil eventually defeats the church? Of course not. Of course not. This is symbolic literature. This is symbolic to try to express a message, an understanding. Of course not. We've already read that the church will have its witness for the duration of the last days, the full 1260 days. The church will be here till the Lord returns, but there will be casualties. There will be Christian martyrs along the way. Now, their refusal to bury these two witnesses, well, that is, uh, you know, and you think about today's term, refusal to bury a body, letting the dogs and the vultures have at it. Boy, is that not a sign of massive disrespect? It's dishonor not to bury a body. This is very symbolic. It means that Christians, they are going to be held in great contempt. The world's going to hate Christians. And in many parts of the world, Christians are hated. And in many parts of the United States, Christians are looked upon with great contempt. That's what we come back to. The, this message of the gospel, it is bittersweet. It is sweet as honey to those who are being saved. It is bitter and turns those who are lost. And by this symbolic vi vision of not bearing the dead, it's how non-believers will trample on and 
and dishonor the message of God. And you look at verse 11, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. The second woe was passed. The third woe is coming. What happened after three and a half days from when these witnesses were killed in John's vision? Again, three and a half days is what? It is a symbolic reference to the entirety of the last days. So in other words, what he's saying is, is that there'll be great opposition to the church. But at the end, at the completion of the last days, this is a clear reference to the resurrection of Jesus when he returns to vindicate his people. For Christians, this is what we long for every single day. For the lost, this will be terrifying. The return of Christ will come and these witnesses will be raised. In other words, Lord is coming to save the church. To save all those who've been sealed by God. That's what this resurrection image is of these two witnesses. The church will be, will be brought out from that. This earthquake again is what? Symbolic of God's judgment. And it says 7,000 people were killed. What that's a reference to is seven, 7,000, a complete picture of the judgment of the lost. Revelation 1-7 gives us this beautiful image. We've already read it on the very first sermon in this series. He said, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. The Lord is coming back. And what we are reading in Revelation chapter 11 is a parable of the church. And when you break it down, the message is very simple. Throughout the duration of the last days, the gospel is preached with victory and power. Satan opposes it with all the forces of his demonic horde that he can muster. He resists the message of the church. God intervenes with the second coming of Jesus. He crushes all of his enemies, ushering in the final judgment. In other words, we win. So what does all this mean? I mean, really, you unpack it. We've, we've gone through a, a lot here. John eats a scroll. It's bittersweet. The church is God's messengers. And, and most of the world will not accept our message. It turns their stomach. But to those who will, it's sweet. We must keep preaching and saving as many as we can. To the Christians who were suffering in John's day when they read this, this would have been incredibly encouraging. It means that God has taken notice of them. God has never taken his eyes off of his people. They are not forgotten. They are not left for dead. They are not trampled over. Uh, um, you know, God sees all of this. And one day, one day, God will have his vengeance. Why do you think the Bible says over and over, he who has an ear let him hear. What do you hear? What do you see? So what does this mean to us in our day? It means a lot of things, but I can think of two that I want to share with you before we're done. What it means is that when we faithfully proclaim God's message, we too will face hostility. That is a guarantee. 
Everything in Revelation points to the fact that when we boldly proclaim this bittersweet message of the good news of Jesus Christ, we will face hostility. I'm grateful that we are not facing it like some Christians are in other parts of the world. But that doesn't mean that one day we won't face it just like them. Because everything in Revelation that teaches me about the last days that we're living in, they're evil days, and Satan is doing everything he can to oppose the church. Friends, we will have trouble. We will face hostility when we proclaim the pure, unadulterated good news of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. It also means this. We must proclaim God's message with great urgency. Do you hear me, friends? This message is not something that we can just sit back on and hope one day people will figure it out. We must share this message with great urgency. Why? Because right now, there is still some time left. That seventh trumpet has not blasted its sound, yet the Lord is still in the days where he's described as he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And right now, and I may be talking to you right now, You still have time. You may not have time tomorrow, but you have time right now. You can go from out to in through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I still have time to tell our loved ones and friends that they can follow Jesus and be saved from the wrath that is coming, that is clearly coming. And we see it coming in the book of Revelation. I'll end with this. In his biography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham shares a story. It's a great book, by the way. He shares a story of a golf outing that he had with President Kennedy. If you know anything about Billy Graham's life, he was kind of like the preacher to the presidents. He, uh, he met and counseled every president for, for, for decades. So he tells a story about how this time he's on a golf outing with President Kennedy. Kennedy uh, describes himself as a Catholic. I, I think he's probably a less than faithful Catholic. But uh, Billy Graham is playing golf with Kennedy. And Kennedy said to Billy Graham, he said, Hey, Billy, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus? And Billy Graham said to President Kennedy, he goes, Oh, absolutely. I believe it with all of my heart. And then he said, Billy, does the Catholic Church believe that? And Billy Graham thought for a moment, he says, well, the second coming is in the creeds of the Catholic Church, so yes, they believe it. And President Kennedy said, well, you know, they don't ever preach about it. They don't tell us really anything about it at all. I'd like to know, Billy, what you think about the second coming of Jesus. So Billy, telling the story, he told him all about the second coming of Jesus. And at the end of that, President Kennedy said to Billy Graham, he said, you know, all of that is very interesting, and you have given me a lot to think about. I would love to talk to you more about this someday in the future. And Billy Graham's like, sure, anytime. Here's the conclusion to that story, and I'm going to read it right from Billy Graham's own words. He writes, the last time I was with Kennedy was at the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast. I had the flu. After we had both given our talks, we walked out of the hotel to his car, and at the curb, the president turned to me and said, Billy, could you ride back to the White House with me? I want to talk to you for a little bit. Mr. President, Billy Graham protested. He pro- I've got a fever. I don't want to give you this thing. Couldn't we wait to talk some other time? It was a cold, snowy day, and I was freezing as I stood there without my overcoat. Of course, he said very graciously. Then came November 22nd, 1963, and Billy Graham never saw President Kennedy again. Reflecting back on that, Billy Graham writes, 
His hesitation at the car door at the conclusion of that national prayer breakfast, his request haunts me still. What was on his mind? Should I have just gone with him? It is an irrecoverable moment. Friend, the truth is this. We don't know when our life will end. We do not know when Jesus will return. What we do know is that Christians will face hostility when we preach and proclaim and share the unadulterated pure words of God. So we must proclaim this good news. We must witness to others with great urgency while there is still time. Remember, in the end, we win. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you for this message of Revelation 10 and 11. Lord, help us to take it to heart today. Lord, I pray that it's a word of encouragement and it's a word of challenge. Lord, I pray that we will never see our friends and family who are outside of Christ ever the same way again. But Lord, I pray you put great urgency in all of us so while there is still time, they can hear, accept, and believe. They can go from out to end and we can celebrate. Lord, I pray that you help us stay faithful until the end, knowing that we will face hostility because your word tells us we will. But Lord, help us stay faithful till the very end. And Lord, help us never be bashful in sharing the good news of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anybody who is joining us today who right now knows in their heart they are on the outside looking in. Lord, I pray that they will come under conviction, the conviction of your Holy Spirit. They will receive this as good, sweet news that turns them on to salvation and not bitter that turns them away from you. Lord, I pray that right now, right there in their very living room or car or wherever they're watching this, they too, Lord, they will turn their repentant heart to you and seek your forgiveness and declare that they believe and they will follow you for the rest of their lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all you've done for us. And it's in your holy name we pray these things.